Time marches on and leaves behind those who are not equipped for tomorrow. We cannot predict what will happen in the future, but we at Regent University aim to prepare you for it. With world-class professors and over 150 programs, the opportunities to find success in your field are many. So don't let tomorrow pass you by. The journey to your brightest future begins here. Visit regent.edu slash learn more. Find a theater at Let- The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Progress is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. Thank you for joining me today. The cry of my heart is Jesus. I'm tired of the wickedness of our day. I'm tired of the deadness. I'm tired of the destruction, the anger, the bitterness, the violence. I want Jesus. I want to read a passage of Scripture for you. It's found in Hebrews, the 10th chapter. Hebrews, the 10th chapter. I'll begin reading with verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. I want to break this down just a little bit for you. 
we have confidence because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We have confidence because of his birth, his death, his resurrection. We have confidence now to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. You recall Aaron was only allowed to enter one time a year as the high priest. And he was told then not to go in without the incense that would shield him. Incense in Scripture is symbolic of the prayers of God's people. You enter into the most holy by the blood of Jesus, but you also do it in a practical way through prayer. Now he says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with the actual evidence, the reality of the blood of Jesus having done its work in your heart, without cracks, without cracks where holiness and righteousness can leak away, in full assurance of faith, being absolutely convinced that everything I desire is found in Jesus, being absolutely convinced that my whole life rests in the hands of Jesus Christ. If you still believe that there is some pleasure to be found in the wickedness of this world, then you cannot enter into the most holy compartment. If you don't know how to pray, you are still barred from the most holy compartment. It's going to mean that we appropriate this gift of the blood of Jesus, that we have died to ourself, that we have met the conditions that we now enter into this most holy place and we draw near to God, having our hearts sprinkled, that is, in the spirit realm, having had the blood applied. And this, and this clears the guilty conscience. In other words, praying through until we know that we have been forgiven. And having our bodies washed with pure water, that is, having been baptized, not sprinkled, but immersed, put under the water. We're to be sprinkled with the blood. We're to be baptizo by the water, that is, to be put under. It's a symbolic gesture. We find in the sixth chapter of the book of Romans, to be put under the water is a symbol of our dying and then being resurrected into the newness of life. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. 
one of our dear brothers, looked up this word in the Greek to spur one another on. And the word actually means to irritate. How we can bestir, irritate, move on toward love and good deeds. In other words, standing opposed to anger and bitterness, standing opposed to selfishness, standing opposed to consumerism. And then he says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. See, we're called to be the church, not to attend church. Meeting house religion is pretty cheap. I want to read for you today one of my favorite stories. It's a long story, but I beg your indulgence. I think it'll be well worthwhile. It's from this book, Remarkable Miracles, by C.G. Bevington. He wrote it sometime around 1920s. He says, I was holding a meeting in Indiana, and the weather was very cold with plenty of snow. People came for miles in old-fashioned two-horse sleds, and their sleigh bells could be heard for great distances. Some even came as far as 35 miles in their sleigh. Many came to see the sights at the meeting, and many of those tumbled into the whirlpool as they took to calling it. Several had gotten down and been actually saved, while four of those who came from a distance were sanctified. As the meeting progressed, these four who had been saved said several times that I must come over into their neighborhood. Now, I paid no attention to this as my hands were full, but they kept urging me until finally I said, Well, where do you live and how far from here? Well, it's about 25 miles. We have a Methodist church over there, and we want you to come. Well, as the time came to close the meeting, I asked, Do you have the permission of your pastor for me to hold a meeting in your church? Oh, that's all right, as the church is on Father's place. He built it. Well, I said, if it belongs to the Methodist conference, and you, you then need to get permission. Then I went up to my room and got on my face, and I lay there for the next 26 hours until the word came to go. Now, the next morning, three of their leaders came to see me, but there was no call from their pastor, so I sent them back again. The pastor came over the next day, and he said, I hear some of our people been attending your meeting, and they want you to come over with us. I understand you preach holiness. Yes, as hot as I can. He said, well, we're John Wesley Methodist. Well, I said, I haven't been running into many of them as of late. In fact, I don't find many John Wesley Methodists. Well, do you preach holiness to sinners? I preach just as God gives me the message. Some places it's on holiness as a second work of grace. And then at others, it's holiness is very seldom mentioned. Well, we'd be happy to have you come over as it would please some of our people 
but I want you to know we consider it very unwise to preach holiness to sinners. We would suggest you preach regeneration or being born again to the sinners, as that is what they need. Then if you want, we could have some afternoon meetings for holiness. I said, is that merely a suggestion, or does it take the form of a command? Well, I think it's the only way we could permit you to come over. Well, I can't come on those terms, I told the pastor. He said, then, how would it do to have one night of the week for holiness? I can't agree to that either, as it might be all holiness as a second work. I can't come over unless I'm to have complete charge and control the meeting so as to preach as long as God said I'm to preach, and just as he prescribes, I could not have any restrictions whatever. I might be led to call on you to pray, and then again I might not be. Aren't you bordering on fanaticism, he said, accusingly? Looking him square in the eye, I said, Pastor, you can term it whatever you wish. That is where I stand if I'm to come over. So he went back and he told the people who had sent him, Brethren, we can't have that fellow over here. He's a genuine crank. He said he wouldn't let me have anything to do with the meetings, not even to pray. He probably won't allow me to even be on my own platform. We're not going to have him over here. To this outburst, the people replied, Well, if we can't have him at the church, we'll fix up a tobacco stripping house and we'll put seats in it. We'll put a stove in it, and that will hold about as many as the church. We feel that man ought to come here. Souls prayed through every night over there. You've been here three years, and not a soul has been regenerated. The pastor saw that it would never do, so he gave in, and he sent for me. And I went over, and I opened fire on his 300 members. Now, the pastor had said that I ought not to preach holiness to sinners, but I said this doctrine of freedom from sin seems to please the sinner pretty well. He said they had 350 members, and they were all saved, of course. Well, I felt a four who'd been over to me at the other meeting and had finally gotten salvation and were then sanctified were probably a pretty safe sample of the whole 350 After the third sermon, the pastor drew me aside and he gave me a surprise announcement. He said the ladies' aid had planned quite an extensive program for Christmas and they could not locate any place for their work except the church. He said they were were quite sorry as they they would dearly love to have me continue the meetings, but to please the ladies' aid, he had to close the meetings down. Now, I had a signed contract that permitted me to remain in that church, yet I would not use that to enforce the meetings. Being permitted to preach the fourth night, however, I announced the action of the pastor and the, and the aides. Well, one man jumped up and he said, we'll go over to the schoolhouse. The situation was put to a vote as to whether to go to the schoolhouse and it was said that every hand went up except that of the pastor and his wife. Even his son and daughter raised their hands. So we went over to the schoolhouse the next night. 
The following day, the pastor hired five boys to cut up the seats so as to stop this meeting. He gave them $2 apiece, and they went at it in great shape. The board met and said, The boys are cutting up the seats badly, and we don't want you to meet in our schoolhouse. So the people went out and found another place for the meeting to go on. That night, as I went to my lodging place, I found the house darkened and my suitcases sitting out by the gate. I took that for a pretty good hint, so I picked up my suitcases and started out like Abraham, not knowing where to go. I could have gone, I suppose, to any of those four families, but I didn't know where they lived, and God did not want me to go there anyway, as he had a better place for me. By my staying where I ended up, he got far more glory than if I'd found any of those people's homes. I kept trudging on in that snow, and it was very cold, so cold that the men had been cutting solid ice, 22 inches thick, out on the pond. It didn't take long for me to get tired and set the suitcases down and ask the Lord, Where am I going? What is that to thee? Follow thou me was all I could get in answer. All right, I sighed. I picked up the suitcases and I started on, and I found myself in sort of a lane where great furrows had been cut in the road from drawing corn out in the fall. Now, I couldn't see these deep ruts as they were filled with snow, and I began to fall. I fell many times, cutting myself so that my face was bleeding in several places, and my hands were so icy cold I could barely stand it. I said, Oh God, where am I going? Again came the same answer, What is that to thee? So on I trudged until I saw what appeared to be a great mound in the road. As I was looking down to try to avoid those ruts, I forgot the mound, and I ran right into it. It proved to be a, star, a straw stack, and a voice said, This is the place. I said, All right. I threw off my coat, and I went to pulling straw, which helped me to get nicely warmed up. I pulled straw out until I was back inside the stack some twelve feet, about three feet above the ground so as to be warm. I packed the straw down, I took in my suitcases, I put on my coat, and I dropped down on my back, and I lay my head on one of the suitcases as a pillow. Very pleased, I said, well, praise God. I don't reckon Jesus ever had a much better place than this, and probably most of the time not nearly so good. At that, the straw stack was lighted up, and I beheld the most beautiful sight I've ever seen. I looked just like it looked just like crystallized stars near nearly as large as a little finger, lying in all positions, crossing each other to form a beautiful network. I was frightened and I feared I'd gotten a match lighted somehow as I was pulling straw, but my fears were soon banished. I threw up my my hands, and there was nothing except cold straw. I'll never be able this side of heaven to explain or draw a worthy picture of that scene 
and the dazzling going on down in my soul. I've often thought it was a foretaste of what heaven is going to be like. We're taught down here to view things according to certain laws. The appearance of those straws did not allow the working of natural laws, as each was apart from the others, yet they did not appear to touch one another. I've, I've thought many times that herein is our trouble. We see things down here under the lights of natural law. God often breaks through the natural order of things. He completely sets aside the natural. So we often have failed to get the real import of his designs. That experience in that cold stack of straw has been a great help to me many a time, enabling me to accept things that I would never have formally accepted, that I would have immediately rejected on philosophical grounds. But while God will work through natural laws, I found he has special lessons for us which often go far beyond the natural law. I've also learned that ruts are dangerous channels down which to travel. God wants us pliable so he can twist us up and toss us here and yonder. He wants us to be able to recognize his hand, though it appears to be cloaked in other garb or moving apart from those ways in which similar incidents have appeared. There is no doubt that God would give us wonderful revelations if he could just get us in condition to receive them. I'm assured the deeper lessons God wants us to have are all in the line of the apparently ridiculous. They're not on the public highway, and the casual traveler never sees them, for they're not on his route. These lessons are learned on the unreasonable and the out-of-the-ordinary route, generally similar to my getting into that straw stack. I learned invaluable lessons from that. When I told this to dear Reverend John Fleming, he burst out crying as he said, Brother Bevington, I would have given a hundred dollars to see the straw stack when it was so lit up. Had I appealed to reason as I came up against that stack when the thermometer was registering below 20 degrees, everything would have stood against such proceedings. My natural thoughts would have proclaimed this kind of argument. God has set forth his laws which require obedience relative to taking care of our bodies. I do not accept this stack of straw as the place. He wants me He wants me to be in a safe place. He has called me to preach and said the labor is worthy of his hire. I am his child. Mr. Devil, I am not going to allow you to run me into such a place as this being on a tremendously cold night. I'll get pneumonia if I go there, and I'll die prematurely. Well, thus I could quite logically have reasoned all of this out, though had I done so, I would have lost one of the grandest lessons of my life. We need to get where we will be willing to ignore all laws of logic in order to get some of the private lessons that the Lord has for us. 
just those few words of acquiescence to his will when I said, I suppose Jesus never had a better bed than this. And he gave me one of the grandest visions I've ever beheld. I'll now proceed with the other marvels of God that were going on at that time. He will open up great and unheard of things if we will allow him to get us where those great and unheard of things are in operation or where he can consistently operate them without knocking others of his lambs flat. While his great manifestations of glory lasted only a short time, raptures of exceeding great joy continued to come in waves one right after another. I lay there wrapped in such great splendor until I struck a match and looked at my watch and saw that it was 4.30 a.m. I turned over and went to sleep. And when I awoke and struck a match again, it was 5.30 p.m. I crawled out. I shook off the chaff, used my handkerchief for a towel after washing well in the snow, and started back to the house that had been offered to continue the meetings. I found 25 people there with saws and horses, and they'd been drawing logs and sawing them into blocks for seats. Both rooms were nearly seated. I said to the man of the house, Are these two rooms all you have? Surprised at my question, he replied, But these will hold more than the schoolhouse. Is there more room, or is there another room upstairs? I persisted. Well, yes, sort of. It's an unfinished attic. What do you want to do? Go up there? Why do you want to do it? Well, I said, I want a place to pray. Then I spied a door on the ceiling, and I asked, Can I get up through there? He said, There isn't any floor, and it'll be cold. Well, just let me get up there. So he got a ladder, and up I went. I got close to the large chimney lying across the joist and I burst into great sobs. I just lay there, and I wept. I ignored the increasing noise downstairs, supposing they were finishing up seating. Finally, I struck a match and saw that it was 9.30 p.m. I got up and went downstairs and found over a hundred people waiting for me. I had no message. I only had a great burden that souls be brought under such conviction they would see their real condition and fly to the Son of God for refuge. There was some unoccupied space, and I laid down. I laid down on my face again. In about 30 minutes, the preacher's son came over to me, and he whispered, Aren't you going to preach? There are over a hundred people here waiting. I exhorted him and the rest to pray. But he said, there's no one here who can do any good at prayer. You've spoiled all of us. The only prayer that any of us ought to pray is the prayer of repentance. Well, I thought he was about right, so I got up and I said, Brethren, this great battle must be fought out on our faces. I have no message to preach. You've had too much preaching. 
I only have a burden of prayer that each of you might be brought face to face with your real condition as God now sees you. I beg you to fly for your lives to the Son of God who has made provision for your complete deliverance from sin. At that I crawled out of the window nearest me and I made a beeline for my straw house. I lay on my face to plead and weep and moan and groan and wrestle all night. When I finally struck a match, it was 5.30 a.m. I fell asleep until that afternoon. Then I crawled out and I took another wash in the snow and it was still freezing cold. And I went back to the house where I found about 75 people. More than 20 were down praying as if they really meant business. Some were sobbing. Others just kneeling and praying. Others with head, heads up pleading and weeping. Others walking where they could find room. And that whole crowd was pleading for mercy. Mind you, there were supposed to be saved people from the church among them the son and daughter of the pastor. Well, I just raised the window and crawled back, back in as if there was no other possible way because the front door was blocked with people trying to come in. I climbed back up that ladder into the attic. I got on my face across those, those joists close to that warm chimney. After a while, the man of the house crawled up the ladder and he said, Sir, it's after eight. They all want you please to come down and preach to them. Tell them to go on praying, I said. Well, I'm afraid they'll get tired of this and they'll leave and they won't come back. Then all of this work will be lost. Here was more logic to contend with, but I remained where I was. I, I could hear them praying and singing at about 10 p.m. I went down and found 40 in real soul agony. These included the pastor's son and daughter, both of whom had been testifying to being saved for several years. I could see God was working, and I knew how foolish it would be to, for me to try to take the work out of his hands. I just went to the window, raised it up, and slipped out and headed back to my private quarters to plead with God for them. I got back on my face and struggled and agonized and wrestled. I wept. I held on, expecting God to work wonders. I finally struck a match, and I found that it was already 6 a.m. So I just rolled over, and I slept the whole day. Well, that evening I had another good wash in the snow and I took myself and started for the meeting. I found about 200 people there, most of them in great misery. One man and his wife met me outside and began to tell me about the trouble they were having with their bad neighbor. I said, go inside and get down on your faces and plead for mercy. Throw open your hearts to God. Get honest before him and let him examine you. And they did so. And another came to me saying, What shall I do? I said, Get right with God. 
Why, I'm a good member here. I'm in good standing. I repeated, Get right with God. Repent. Get yourself properly fixed up. Then matters can more easily be adjusted. Well, two sisters were the next to unload their terrible meanness of their neighbors, saying, We want you to pray for them, as they're a terror to the whole neighborhood. No, you too are the ones who need praying for. Never mind those neighbors. Get yourselves right. Go through with God. They were shocked. They informed me why Brother Bevington were members in good standing in this church here. Well, you're all the worse for it. We want to get our children saved, my son and daughter-in-law, my daughter and son-in-law. Then get in there yourself and get down on your face and deal with God directly, not with Bevington. There's no room inside. I could hardly believe their excuse. Then make room. Go into the kitchen if you have to. The kitchen is crammed full. I said, go in, go in, go in. You know what? I don't have a message for you today. All I can read is this story and say, go get right with God. Stop the foolishness. Stop the church stuff. Get right with God. I'm so tired of the wickedness of this church age. Don't we at some point have to go before God and let him let him examine our hearts? Let him have free access? Let him break down those doors that we've closed against him? Don't we some way have to just go get before God? I preach holiness. And even yet in my congregation that I'm responsible for before God, the National Prayer Chapel, after I've preached a very strong sermon, someone will come sashaying up to me and they'll ask me some foolish, stupid question about some activity of the week or about some casual thing that really has no significance and no meaning or they want to share with me that they went and visited their Aunt Holly and how miserable it was visiting their Aunt Holly, and I want to look at them and say, do you really not get it? Go get right with Jesus and forget about Aunt Holly. Go get right with Jesus. Open your heart and let him examine you. Drop your your meeting house religion and get right with Jesus. Now, there's a logjam with this broadcast. There's a logjam with finances. There's a logjam with people who call the broadcast. There's a logjam with people who are not coming to the National Prayer Chapel who've been told to come. And all of it, because people... You're afraid to get right with God. You're afraid to just lay it all down and let Jesus have free access to your heart. 
Isn't it time? I'm Ray Greenley. I pastor the National Prayer Chapel. It's in Woodbridge, Virginia. Let me just give you some information. Our post office box is 2346. That's National Prayer Chapel, post office box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. You can also go to our webpage. You can see this video. It's streaming live. Or you can see yesterday's broadcast. Go to nationalprayerchapel.com. Or come and open your heart to God. Pay whatever price you have to pay. Drive 50 miles, 100 miles, whatever you have to drive, come. We meet at All Saints Church, the All Saints Anglican Church. And the address for that is 14851 Gideon Drive. Woodbridge, Virginia, 22192. Again, it's 14851 Gideon Drive, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22192. When you drive in the front entrance to the All Saints Church, turn right, go around the access road to the back of the church, and there at ground level you'll find the lower lobby. Come in the lower lobby doors, they're double glass doors, and immediately on your left, someone will be there to greet you, and immediately on your left is a wonderful place for the meeting of the Lord's people. I invite you to come. We meet on Sunday at 12.30 p.m. Our prayer time begins at 12, praise and worship at 12.30. You're welcome. If you want Jesus, and you want to get right with him, then I urge you to come. Or if you're a victorious Christian who finds the fire is slowly draining away from your heart, and you know that you need to hear a straight word of the living God, then I invite you to come. He says, I left those self-righteous complainers and went to my window, and I crawled in, and I slipped up the ladder. Only a few saw me, but soon the man of the house came and he said, About three hundred people are here. I finally went down and found many of them on their knees pleading. The man's son was crying out as he said, Oh, won't you preach? I'm so miserable. I need help. Please tell me what to do. My sister's weeping too, and as if her heart were broken. There was only room to stand right at the ladder, so there I began my text. Prepare to meet thy God. I believe that never before nor since have I delivered such a message as was given during the next 40 minutes. Everyone was writhing in great agony, some walking and screaming. Only about 60 could kneel, but they were doing good work. Oh, how God did send out the lightning bolts in great torrents. Finally, I'd done all God wanted me to do there, so I hoisted the window and made my way to my accommodations in the haystack. 
I crawled into that familiar straw cave, got on my face and could do nothing but cry and groan and plead all night long, and then I slept until the evening again. After taking another ice bath in the snow, I started back to the house and found about sixty people there. I stopped and stood at the ladder, and as I waited there, the pastor came in, and he began to lash me with his tongue, calling me about all the names in the catalog. Now, I was somewhat accustomed to such a vocal expression, so they did not disturb me. I just remained speechless through it all. He finally wound up by ordering every one of his members out of there with a command never to return. They all arose and followed him out except his son and the man and family of the house and one other man and his family. I think there were maybe 16 people left. And suddenly I felt like preaching, and so I did, on the judgment and the wrath of God. The son, the man of the house, and his wife and the other man prayed through by early morning. We had a blessed time, and that, and that son did some wonderful preaching. The night before, the pastor had taken his daughter by the dress collar and dragged her out of the meeting, threatening to punish her severely if she ever returned. The son was too big for that kind of treatment, so the pastor had to go off without him. I slipped out and went to my straw house where I wept until noon and then went to sleep. I awakened that evening and went out for another snow bath in my large bathroom. I went back down to the house and found that only 22 were there, but all 22 were down pleading for mercy except those who'd gotten through and they were now seeking sanctification. And the pastor's daughter was there again. I felt led to remain all night with them, so I stayed until 3 a.m. and then went upstairs. Soon the woman of the house came up and said, I think I'm going to throw all those blocks out and clean the whole thing up. I'm convinced I'm all right. The pastor says I am because I've been a member here for years. You're just making fools out of all of us, my husband, my son, and my daughter. I said, woman, get down those steps as quickly as you can and start screaming for mercy, or you may be in hell within 20 minutes. With a look of real shock on her face, back down she went, with me right behind her. I tell you, she changed her tune, and in 40 minutes she struck fire, and she began to preach. And we were there until after daylight. Then I slipped off back to my headquarters. Now this brings me to the eighth day. Very early that morning, the pastor's daughter got through, and in the evening she said, Brother Bevington, I have disobeyed my father for the first time in my life. I had to come here as I feared I would lose my soul. Please pray I may be willing and able to endure my punishment. She well knew the temper of her father. I said, All right. I'll go up into the attic and I'll plead your case. You be loyal to Jesus and to what you have received. So up I went. She and her brother had about a mile to walk home. He was seeking sanctification. But as he had a whole lot of, of things to undo, it was a somewhat tedious matter. Again, do you understand? 
regeneration is being born again. It's being changed into a new creature. Sanctification is dying out to all of those self-issues, and they have to be inventoried and cataloged and dealt with one by one as the Holy Spirit inventories our life and sets us totally free. I was pleading that the experience of the two would so melt the Father that he would be compelled to surrender. Finally, I felt the the burden gone. Light was breaking in as I raised up off the sleepers, praising God for the daughter's victory, and I went back to my straw stack, this being the ninth morning. I had not yet had a mouthful to eat or lain on anything except straw and the jouse in the attic. When I returned that night, the man of the house met me outside, and he asked, Brother Bevington, where have you been staying? I said, none of your business. Now, see here, this is my business, and I'm going to make it so. I went today to the Reynolds where I supposed you were stopping, and they said you were not there. I went to all the other places that there would be any likelihood of your being, and none of them knew where you were stopping. Now, tell me where you've been staying. I repeated, it's none of your business. Go on in there and pray through and get the Holy Spirit. No, sir. I'm not going in there until you tell me. So I just pointed in the direction of the straw stack. Wife, this man has been sleeping and staying in that straw stack Where have you been getting your meals? I just pointed to the skies. He called to his wife, This man hasn't had a mouthful to eat these two weeks. He was exaggerating by three days. Come in and get something to eat, he said, but I declined. As I was listening to his quizzing, here came the pastor, wild-eyed and bareheaded, speeding through the snow in his cutter. His son and daughter were with him and the sleigh bells were ringing like crazy. He was being sifted. Oh, I pray God will sift you. I pray God will sift you. I pray that God will sift you. The son and the daughter had arrived home and gone into their room where their dad had been sleeping, believing his daughter to be upstairs in her bed. And she called out to him and said, Father, I disobeyed you last night. I just had to go back up there or go to hell. Now, Father, I'm ready and prepared for my punishment. The son was standing at her side with his head bowed, pleading for the salvation of his father. Go to bed and leave me alone, the father said. No, father, I want my punishment. I disobeyed you, and I'm ready. At that, he gave a yell, and he bounded out of bed. He fell on his knees, and he went to crying for mercy. The son and the daughter dropped on their faces, and in ten minutes their mother climbed out of bed beside them, and she cried, Oh, children, pray for me too. I need what you have. 
So they wrestled in prayer in that bedroom until till they came and then the following all until the following afternoon. And the mother prayed through and the father did not get through. He asked us back to the church that night. But as both rooms were full, for many had heard of the pastor's actions and had come back. We held a meeting at our usual place that night, and I preached on the text, If any man is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creature. And God gave me a blessed message. The mother prayed through for sanctification early the next morning, but the father still did not get through. As soon as it was daylight, he hitched up and went to every one of those men and women whom he'd called out of there, and he asked them to forgive him. It took him three days to make the circuit, but he did it. He said that at the first house he went to, he asked forgiveness and invited the people out to the meeting. They closed the door, and he started to leave when a voice said, And is that all? He looked all around and saw no one anywhere near. Not being used to the voice of God, he was quite puzzled. By the time he reached the gate, he heard the voice say again the same words. He said that he had to go back and fall on his knees before those people and really ask their forgiveness. He gladly knelt and asked forgiveness of all the 300. We then moved the meeting back up to the church. And we spent the next three weeks there. As my straw stack experience had prepared me for a good meal I had it at the parsonage, I continued to eat only one meal a day during those three weeks. If I felt clear to tell you it would do, it would no doubt be refreshing to relate many of the incidents which occurred during those three weeks. But I'll cut the account short by saying, I preached only two sermons. <clears throat> Pardon me, I preached only two sermons. And those on the last two days of the meetings. The rest of the time I just lay on my face on the platform day and night. The pastor's wife and son and daughter prayed through and they got sanctified. There were several incidents in the pastor's seeking that that were way of interest. took five days and nights to kill him out. He rolled on the floor. He perspired profusely. He made restitutions. He put up a good struggle, but he finally got through. And he was a powerful witness for several years. I saw him at the Cincinnati camp meeting three successive years on the platform, delivering good messages of full salvation. You know, when I look at this story, all I can say is, oh God, come and sift us. Oh God, come and sift us. Are you ready for God to come and deal with your heart? Are you ready for God to sift you? Are you ready to to give up casual, 
lukewarm, hard-hearted, entertaining Christianity? Are you willing to give up your pagan faith of Buddhism or Hinduism or Mormonism? Are you willing to give up your Muslim faith? Are you willing to die out and seek Jesus and be transformed? Have your sins forgiven? Be made into a new creature? Are you ready to be sifted? Will you let God have his way in your life? It's not going to work for you to just dress up your pagan heart in Christian clothes and say all manner of sentimental things. It's not going to work for you to go to church and sit and listen to beautiful sermons and beautiful music and somehow think that that's going to work. It's not going to work. You're going to have to deny yourself and take up your cross, be crucified. Then you'll be able to really follow Jesus. Almighty God, Almighty God, sift your people. Sift your people. Turn the x-ray machine on. Don't let us play games. Don't let us play dress-up. Oh, Lord. There has to be a change, Jesus. The world is being filled with darkness, and the light has been almost extinguished. You can't tell the difference, Lord, between those who are your people and those who are the pagans anymore. Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525.